Father, this morning, I'm just so grateful to gather with the church and just sing to you, Lord. Those songs we just sung were so good. Just singing about what Christ has done for us, laying down his life for us, giving us his righteousness, raising, being raised to new life. And Lord, we can sing about that today, Lord. We're just so grateful for your son, Jesus, and how he has rescued us. And Lord, I just pray this morning as we get into your scriptures, and Lord, especially as we get into your scriptures about a topic that, Lord, our culture finds very tense, that, Lord, our hearts would just be overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning as we read your word, as we think about the topic of race, that, Lord, your spirit would just fill this room in our hearts, Lord, with humility, with open-mindedness, Lord, an eagerness to live our lives in step with the gospel. Lord, we're gonna be talking about a topic this morning that the enemy, Satan, loves to use to divide people. And Lord, he is not welcome here. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would give us unity and not division. Lord, we ask for your help in this moment. Thank you for your word to instruct us so that, Lord, we don't have to guess about these things. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, several months ago, uh, I preached the first sermon in a series that we started called This Cultural Moment. And this series is a series we're gonna do every few months or so. We're just gonna press pause on whatever sermon series we're in uh, to do one of the sermons from this particular sermon series. And the, the point of this is to pause and just address particular topics that our culture is dealing with and is talking about. I'm of the mind that if our culture is talking about something a lot and the word of God has something to say about it, then in the church we should talk about it. And we should go to God's word to figure out how God instructs us in these various topics. And so this morning, I want us to use the word of God to address the topic of race. As we all know, race has been a very emotionally charged, politically charged, difficult topic in our culture. And we've been wrestling with it really since our country began. It's not a new conversation. And the word of God has a lot to say about it. And so we're gonna go to the word of God so it can instruct us on how we are to think about this topic. And that's why we're gonna be in Galatians chapter two. So if you have your Bible, I'll read from Galatians two. And uh, the, the Bible actually has so much to say about this topic, there's no way we'll be able to deal with it in just one sermon. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna do the best we can looking at one scripture uh, together this morning. So that's in the book of Galatians. Now, let me just give you some quick context, some quick background. Uh, the book of Galatians is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a church in Galatia, which is modern day Turkey, all right? And what was going on in this church, this is a church that Paul planted and what was going on is there are people inside that church that were teaching that if you wanted to come to faith in Jesus, if you wanted to be a Christian, 
then you had to adopt Jewish culture, Jewish practices, Jewish rituals if you wanted to be able to do that, okay? And so they weren't preaching that to come to Christ, all you had to do was trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and nothing else. They were preaching you needed to do that plus adopt Jewish rituals, culture, and practices, and then you would be a true follower of Christ. And so this was a heresy. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes the book of Galatians to address this very issue, and he very forcefully denounces this teaching. The Apostle Paul, when you read this letter, you need to kind of read, Paul has a, a firm tone in this letter because this is what he is addressing. But what was fueling this doctrinal conflict inside this church was ethnic tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, the church in Galatia was in modern day Turkey, so it was filled with a lot of Gentile, non Jewish believers. But there are also Jewish believers inside this church, and what was fueling this conflict was ethnic tension. And so this is what we see in the Galatian church. And so in a part of this letter that Paul writes, Paul talks about an incident that he had with the apostle Peter. All right, so another major leader in the church, Peter. And he writes about a time where the apostle Paul himself confronts Peter because he sees this ethnic tension inside the apostle Peter. All right, so I wanna read this, Galatians 2. We're just gonna read verses 11 to 14. This is, uh, you'll see this on the screen behind me as well if you don't have a Bible. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, but when Cephas, who was the Apostle Peter, okay, when Cephas came to Antioch, so another city, modern day Turkey, primarily Gentile believers inside this church in Antioch. So when Cephas went to that church in Antioch, I, this is the Apostle Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, so James is the apostle down in Jerusalem. He's leading the church down there, primary Jewish believers. So some men come from James, from that church. They come up to Antioch. So when those men come up to this church in Antioch, all right, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. He was extending them the right hand of fellowship. He was with the Gentiles. He had no problem being with the Gentiles. So he's with them. But when those guys came from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing this group of people coming from this Jewish Christian church. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter So that even Barnabas, another major leader in the church, partner of the Apostle Paul's, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter, again, to his face, before them all, everyone saw this encounter. If you, though a Jew, Peter, you're, you're Jewish by birth. Live like a Gentile, meaning you don't believe for one to come to Christ, they need to adopt all the Jewish culture and practices. 
So you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you, Peter, force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? What is happening here? Uh, Paul is pointing out to Peter the difference between what Peter says he believes and the true condition and prejudice of his heart. Now, we all have different fears and prejudices in our heart that our minds wouldn't agree with. Different conditions of our heart that when we think about it, we go, man, I wish I didn't feel that. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, when I was a teenager in my family, we went on a cruise. And this one day, we were docked on an island somewhere, and we went snorkeling. And if you would have asked me, Alan, are you afraid of some of the sea creatures you'll encounter when you're snorkeling, I would have pridefully scoffed at you and go, I'm not afraid of what I'm gonna find out there. So we went snorkeling. It was beautiful through these coral reefs. And then I was right next to my dad and this barracuda came around. You know, this long, mean looking fish with the teeth sticking out of there. It wasn't bothering us at all. Nothing to be worried about. But when I saw that thing, I looked at my dad and I said, I'm out, I'm gone. I turned around and I started swimming straight to shore. And my dad goes, where are you going? I said, I'm done, I'm done. I'm, I'm going back to shore. I'm not dealing with this. I swam straight back, right? And although I would have told you that I was not afraid of evil looking fish, when I came face to face with one, the fear of my heart, it won. I didn't care what anyone thought of me. I'm not swimming with barracudas. Now, this is what happened to Peter. Peter could have preached a sermon about how Jesus Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Ephesians 2, what Jason just read for us. We even see that Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He could have explained theologically that the Jews and the Gentiles have been reconciled in Christ. He extended them the right hand of fellowship. But when the power structures of the church in Jerusalem showed up, the fear and the prejudice of Peter's heart won. And Paul says to Peter, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now we're gonna talk about why Peter's conduct is not in step with the gospel in just a moment. But this morning, I wanna address this current cultural moment in regards to race and one of the things I want, us to, I want to accomplish is I want us as a church to understand and realize that just because a person may, in their mind, in their head, be completely appalled at the idea of racial prejudice, it doesn't mean it could be deeply embedded in their heart. Just because a person truly believes that, and they would be an advocate for the equal treatment and the equality of all people, no matter their race or their gender or their age or whatever it is, doesn't mean prejudice still isn't in the deep parts of their heart. Just because our nation has made strides in our laws and public policy and when it comes to equality, it doesn't mean that our nation's heart has healed and completely repented. See, it's easy for us to accept this idea, the difference between our head and our heart, when we think about it detached from a topic like race, right? 
Um, because the issue of race, it's so deeply emotional, it's, it's very politically charged, and so it's very complex to talk about it. So it's easy for us to think about things like this, like, like I'm not, I would, in my head, I know my neighbor's lap dog isn't gonna kill me, but every time it comes near me, I get nervous, right? Head, heart difference. Um, I know I shouldn't be ashamed of my faith, but I'm really afraid of my coworkers finding out I'm a Christian, right? Head, heart, difference. I know I shouldn't watch or view pornography. I know that's destructive to me and society and everything, but why can't I stop? Head, heart, right? Talk about addiction. Just because our nation has become more educated and, and we've made strides in the area of racism doesn't mean it's completely out of our hearts, and I want to show you this by looking at the history of our nation for a second. Imagine something with me this morning, all right? Just, just pretend that you're in the 15th or 16th century, uh, and you're living on this piece of land that we call America. Or maybe you're living in an African nation, or you're living on an island in the Caribbean. You have vocation with skills, you have a family that you love and you care for. You have a culture with music and art and education. You laugh at jokes. You, you have your own language. And one day, this, this large ship from a European nation hits your shore. Some people get off this ship, walk ashore, and they unroll this scroll, and they begin reciting this statement that was sanctioned by the Catholic Church. Now, of course, you can't understand what they're saying because... It's not in your language. It's, it's their language. It's not your native language. But they read this to you. And here, I'm going to quote what was read to these peoples. It's a long quote. They would say, of all these nations, God our Lord gave charge to one man called St. Peter, that he should be Lord and superior of all men in the world, that all should obey him. Now, they're referring to the Pope. The Catholic Church believes St. Peter was the first pope and then every pope after him was in his office. So they're referring to the pope in this. And he gave him the world for his kingdom and jurisdiction. Wherefore, as best we can, we ask and require that you acknowledge the church as the ruler and superior of the whole world. But if you do not do this, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter into your country. We shall make war against you in all the ways and manners that we can shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highness. We shall take you and your wives and your children, shall make slaves of them, and as such shall sell and dispose of them as, uh, as their highness may command, and we shall take away your goods. And we protest that the deaths and losses which shall accrue from this are your fault, and not that of their highness, not ours, nor of these cavaliers who accompany us. Of course, you're sitting there and this is read to you and you, you don't understand a word you just heard because it's not in your language. And therefore, your people are brutally raped, murdered, enslaved, and colonized. And this is all just a result of the age of exploration. But this age of exploration, right, that declared that the European was superior to the barbaric peoples of these other lands, was approved of within the church, right? And that provided the historical and cultural context upon which our nation would be built. Okay, so now you're in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century where our very own country would operate with the same principle. 
that the person that came over to America from Europe was of more value than the person forced over here from Africa. And since the person from Europe was superior, there was no moral objection. Even in some churches, there was no moral objection to taking them, enslaving them, and disposing of them. And one of the reasons that this was so, I want you to understand this this morning. One of the reasons this was so prolifically accepted in our nation in these early days and one of the reasons why it, this, this kind of white supremacy was so explicit in those early days is because there were many pastors, not all pastors, certainly not all, but there were many pastors who got in their pulpits on Sunday morning and they, just like the Catholic Church provided justification for the age of exploration, they provided theological justification for the enslavement and the subjugation of African peoples, right? So if anyone in their churches was feeling guilty about what was going on in the fields or anything like that, there would be pastors who would open their Bibles and provide a heretical balm to their guilty conscience. What they would do, they would open up Genesis 9 and 10, and they would twist that text and misinterpret it to show that God had cursed the African nations. And therefore, those people were not as valuable image bearers of God as others. Therefore, the treatment of them was inevitable and not morally objectionable. See, when we look at our history as a country, even going all the way back to the age of exploration and colonialism, there was a portion of the church, again, not indicting the whole church, just a portion of the church that joined with the economic and political forces of the day to infect people, to infect the heart with this belief that the person with lighter skin was of more value than the person with darker skin. And this implicit belief was just cemented into the subconscious of our nation. See, when we look at church history on this, I just can't help but lament what many in the church did. I don't think we realize the damage that occurred when the church provided theological justification for this. And their people followed. I mean, think of it this way. When a, when a massive ship runs through the ocean at full speed, it, it, it creates a massive wake. And that wake spreads far and wide. And in the formation of our country, when the church and others, but when the church provided the moral justification for racial supremacy, it was like a massive ship churning through the waters, creating a huge wake, a wake that would spread far and wide because of this passing on of this deep embedded belief that the person with lighter skin was of more value than the person with darker skin. See, the worst damage was not done, the worst damage was not just the explicit versions of racism in those early days. The worst damage was the infection of the heart. People who were taught you're superior and people who were taught you're inferior. Because it was a wake of inherent subconscious racial superiority that would define relations in our country, I think, even to this day. We made strides at the Civil War. Slavery was ultimately outlawed in our country. In the mind of our country, in the head of our country, we said, we don't accept slavery anymore. But in the heart, we found ways. 
During Reconstruction, federal troops had to, man, had to go in and make sure that blacks got the newly found rights that they were given after the Civil War. But those troops were pulled out in 1877, paving the way for the terrorism that was Jim Crow, the marginalizations of blacks from the political process, the development of pseudo-slavery like convict leasing. Like in our hearts, we, we found a way. So just think about this. Um, I think you'll have this on the screen. In, in 1896, there are about 30,000 and some change registered black voters in Louisiana. Four years later, in 1900, there were just maybe just over 5,000. Ten years later, in 1910, I think there was about 700 registered black voters, right? Progress in regards to slavery, right? Think head, our, 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 our public policy didn't mean progress in the heart, of the nation, and that wake was still going. Uh, Jim Crow fueled the great migration of blacks from the south to the north. In the cities in the north, there wasn't as much Jim Crow presence. So in the early part of the 20th century, if you were um, a black walking on the sidewalk in the south and you didn't step off for a white American, you would get killed for that. That wasn't the case in the north. The racial prejudice wasn't as explicit in the North during those times. But the wake was still there. The heart was still infected. So this is why when Roosevelt uh, signed the New Deal into law in the 1930s, those programs that were designed to lift Americans out of poverty were not available to domestic laborers and agricultural laborers, people who, uh, industries dominated by blacks. This is why the Federal Housing Administration, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, created maps of neighborhoods. If blacks lived in those neighborhoods, red lines were drawn around it. If, white, if it was all whites, uh, green lines were drawn around it. And so the red line neighborhoods, those home values declined and they became in disrepair. And the green lined neighborhoods, those home values went up and more um, maintenance was done to those neighborhoods. And then the federal government would scarcely allow blacks to actually get a federally backed mortgage. And so without those mortgages, uh, blacks had to rent in the redlined areas, areas that we call the ghetto today. So what that meant was they couldn't build equity in their homes. And so it created this massive wealth gap in our country because blacks couldn't build equity in their homes, but whites did as the result of these different policies. And the result would last generations. The median wealth of white families in America grew, look at this, from about $46,000 in 1963 to $134,000 in 2013. In that same time period, the median wealth for African-American families went from about $2,300 to $11,000. In 2013, white Americans had 12 times more wealth than black Americans and 10 times more than Hispanic Americans. See, the North offered reprieve from the Jim Crow of the South, but the deeply embedded prejudice had oozed its way into economics and housing and banks and loans and all of that stuff. Progress in regards to Jim Crow didn't exactly equal progress in the heart of the nation. And even as we look at our country today, we have seen all sorts of progress. We've seen great progress when it comes to overt racial bias in this country. I mean, we passed the Civil Rights Act in the 60s and ended segregation. We passed the Fair Housing Act and ended discriminatory housing policies. But when you look at the data, we still see evidence of this today. The Economic Policy Institute came out with a report just this last February of 2018 this is what it had to say. I'm going to, I'm going to quote this one more time here. 
He said, with respect to homeownership, unemployment, and incarceration, America has failed to deliver any progress for African-Americans over the last five decades. In these areas, their situation has either failed to improve relative to whites or has worsened. In 2017, the black unemployment rate was 7.5%, up from 6.7% in 1968. It got worse. And it's still roughly twice the white unemployment rate. In 2015, the black home ownership rate was just over 40%, virtually unchanged since 1968, and trailing a full 30 points behind white home ownership rate, which saw modest gains over the same period. And the share of African Americans in prison or jail almost tripled between 1968 and 2016, and is currently more than six times the white incarceration rate. Now, there are pundits and people and columnists who would say, hey, look, when we look at the data, listen, all of this stuff, racial bias and all that, that is in the past of our nation. That's history. Um, we've gotten over all of that. So when we look at data like this today, that's not a result of racial bias or prejudice or anything like that. That's a result of individual responsibility or irresponsibility. That every person has the same opportunity than everyone else. But when you put the data within the context of our very recent history as a nation, I just, that's a bad argument. Simply not the case. We still live in the wake of systemic injustice against minorities in this country. Now, have we made progress? Yes. Are we still today in this wake of the deeply embedded belief that the person who has lighter skin is of more value than the person of darker skin? Well, that's the debate of our current cultural moment. And it's hard to have this conversation without tempers flaring. Uh, many white Americans, again, not everyone, find it offensive that we're still having this conversation. They feel like it's fueling the prejudice. It's almost as if like, they're in the boat, unaware of the wake behind them, and they see the crystal clear water right ahead. And they say the water's fine. Why are we still talking about this? While at the same time, many minority Americans are in the choppy waters of the wake trying to communicate that although, yes, we've made progress, that they still feel the effects of the deeply rooted prejudice in the heart. Right? That's why they're shouting phrases like Black Lives Matter. And I know that's a, a very tense phrase for some people, but they're not saying black lives are the only lives that matter. They're saying, hear us. Please listen. Please just validate our experience. Is it possible that in our head as a nation, we're totally against racial bias and prejudice? I mean, we, we, would, we would give lectures and talks saying, no, I'm against that. That's not good for our country. That is a stain on our past. But is it still possible that it's present in our heart as a nation? If two men are sitting in a Starbucks waiting on a meeting without ordering a drink, just like my heart took over my head when I was snorkeling, is the fact that these men are black make it more likely that the police get called? Does the color of someone's skin make it more likely, again, just heart takes over head, that police will use greater force? Do home values of neighborhoods consisting of minorities trend lower than those without? I don't know what it's like to walk down my neighborhood and my house, and as I walk by, hear cars in the driveway lock, as people are locking their 
cars from their homes. But I have friends who have that experience. I don't know what it's like to put my house on the market and feel that I need to make sure there's no evidence in the house, uh, like family photos and things like that, that a minority family lives in that house to make sure I get maximum value. But I have friends who have that experience today. I don't know what it's like to preach a really good sermon and for people to say behind my back, wow, I'm really surprised how articulate he is. But I have friends who, who have that experience today. They, they tell me about this. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Our country has a rough history in regards to this. We've made progress. But yeah, I, we, we still today are in the midst of this wake of deeply embedded belief that the person who is of lighter skin is of more value than the one who has darker skin. Our heads may not agree with that, but I think it's still in our hearts as a nation. And I'm not preaching this sermon today. Let me just make this very clear. I'm not preaching this sermon today because I've observed this here at Grace Hill or I think this is a big problem for our church. Not at all. Actually, I am so grateful that I am coming to this pulpit today with no fear about your reaction. I praise God for that because I know that you love Jesus and the gospel and you want that to reign and you don't want this stuff to continue in our culture. The reason why I'm preaching this today is because I believe that the church, Big C Church, the whole church, listen, has some culpability when it comes to generating this wake of deeply embedded prejudice that has infected our nation because it was the church, some, again, not all, but some that provided the theological justification for this. I think the church needs to take some responsibility in this area. And I know that the, the pushback might be, well, we weren't alive then. How, why do we have to take responsibility? Yeah, that was messed up all the way back then, but what, we're not doing that anymore, are we? Well, someone has to take responsibility. And as we read in Galatians, we see that what the church did all the way back then was not in step with the gospel. And we have a responsibility to preach loudly and live loudly what it means to be in step with the gospel. Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to change and redeem the most deeply embedded sin, whether that is racial prejudice or something else. We all have deeply embedded sin, right? And we need the gospel to to dig that out. And my desire is that Grace Hill Church will be a rock in this town that will stop the wake of prejudice in its tracks. So what do we do? Now, there's a lot of info What do we do without that? It's one thing to name the problem. What do we do about the problem? And that's why I want us to go to Galatians 2. So I have a few things I want us to learn from this text and apply it to this issue, into this cultural moment. So here's three things for us, okay? We need to repent, we need to repair, and we need to redeem. So number one, repent. When we go to Galatians 2 and we see this encounter between Peter and Paul, why was Peter's actions out of step with the gospel? Well, in this letter to the Galatians, Paul makes a very clear case, all right, in other parts of his letter, that the human problem before God is universal. That every person, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their religion, no matter their age or gender, it doesn't matter if they're Mother Teresa or if they are sitting on death row, that every single person has the same problem before God. That is that we have sinned against God and we have become his enemy. 
Paul makes this case that everyone is on the same playing field. We all need reconciliation with God. There is not one person who needs it more than the other. We're all the same. And if our problem is universal, then so is the solution. Not everyone will accept the solution, but the solution is universal, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God in his grace sent his son Jesus to live the life we could not live and die the death that we deserve to die. He goes to the cross. He pays for our sin. So he gets the payment for the sin. We don't. He gives us his righteousness. He rises again from the dead so that we could be forever reconciled to God. Right, forever reconciled. Paul literally talks about in Galatians going from being an enemy of God to being an adopted child of God. Never to be cast out. Forever reconciled and given eternal life. And so if the human problem is universal and the human solution to that problem, Jesus Christ, is also universal, this means that the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that there is not one human being that is better than the other. We're all the same in our value and dignity. We're all the same in our sin. We're all the same in that we can't do something to to reconcile ourselves to God. We're all the same in our need for Jesus. And so Peter was out of step with the gospel because Peter's actions demonstrated that he felt he was better than the Gentiles. He demonstrated that in his worldview, everyone is not the same, but there actually is a hierarchy of value. If I asked all of us the question, just if we all individually had to answer the question, do I struggle with racial bias? I think most of us would say no. But if I were to ask it this way, are there people in your life that you think you're better than? Are there people in your life that you look down on, that you judge? Are there parts of your life that are out of step with the gospel? I think all of us, we examine our lives and be like, well, yeah. Absolutely. I don't think we have a problem confessing that. So, you know what I believe is the mark of a true Christian? I don't think the mark of a true Christian is that we live better than everybody else or that we're more moral. Of course, the, the scripture says that you, know, it, the, you will know a tree by its fruit. As Christians, we bear fruit, and that testifies to what we believe. Absolutely. Absolutely, but you know what I believe is the mark of a true Christian is is humility and an eagerness to repent. Because as Christians, we believe that we are the same as everyone else when it comes to our sin and our need for God's grace. When we are made aware of areas of our life that are out of step with the gospel, no matter what they are, we're free to repent and to seek change because of the cross. Right, Our value and our worth is found in Jesus, and Jesus forever secured that for us. So when we are made aware of areas of our life that are out of step with the gospel, we have freedom to confess and to seek change, not fearing what that's going to mean for my relationship with God. So Christians should always be the quickest to repent and have humility. And so Grace Hill, let's lead the way when it comes to repentance, Let's lead the way when it comes to confessing when we're out of step with the gospel. Let's not get defensive when we're made aware of areas of our life, even if it's something like racial bias. Because listen, here's the deal. None of us are above that being in our hearts. 
right? If a, if a person lives in a tough, low-income neighborhood, what assumptions do we make about them? If they talk with slang or broken English, do we view them differently? Uh, maybe it's their body type or the way they dress or maybe they have a disability or, or something else. What about someone's appearance makes our heart nervous even if our head knows it's wrong? So my challenge to all of us this week is let's all try to have an awareness of how we see ourselves as better than others. Let's try and observe the times when our hearts get out of step with the gospel. It, it happens daily. No matter your racial heritage, it, it happens to all of us. So let's seek to be aware of when that happens and let's lead the way in repentance. Number two, repair. In Galatians 2, we see that the Apostle Paul stepped into this awkward gap between the Jews and the Gentiles because he needed to make some repair for the damage that was just caused by Peter. I mean, think about it. Peter had been eating with the Gentiles at the table, enjoying a meal. Those guys, the power players from the church showed up and then Peter distances himself. So how do you think that made the Gentiles feel? Right, Peter just broke their trust. Peter just brought some brokenness into that relationship and shame into that relationship. And so Paul steps into the middle of that and confronts Peter in front of everyone. And he did it to make repair for the damages that Peter had caused when it comes to the witness and the testimony of the church because Peter was a pretty high up leader in the church, wouldn't you say? I believe today repair needs to be made for the damage that has been caused by some in the church being out of step with the gospel when it comes to race in our country. During the civil rights era of our nation, many of the predominantly white churches in our country were not accused so much as overt racism, but many were accused of just being indifferent to what was happening in the nation. Hindsight's 2020. It's easy to look back on those churches and go, hey, why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you raise your voice to all of the injustice happening all around? Why didn't you do what Paul did and stand up and say, hey, that's out of step with the gospel? Well, I think the reason is these, these churches probably did not have the diversity of leadership that would have provided the perspective to lead the church to do what the apostle Paul did here in Galatians. If the leaders of the church were all part of the same majority culture and never experienced the sting of racism, it would have been easy for them not to speak up of what was happening around our country. All of us have limited experience and limited perspective. Doesn't matter what our background is. And so this is the problem in the church today. And one of the ways that we can make repair for the damage that has been done is by ensuring that the church has diverse leadership and platforms diverse voices. I'm not talking about diversity in doctrine or what we believe. I'm talking about ethnic, cultural, experiential diversity. Right, this is a problem in our seminaries today. I'll say it, our good seminaries because our good seminaries don't assign students a diversity of authors. This is a problem, I think, in our education system as students are not given a diversity of perspectives about the history of our nation. And so I think we need to be educated, invite diverse voices into our lives. Here's, here's if you wanna be more educated on this topic, two books I'd recommend to you. The first one is this. It's called The Myth of Equality by Ken Wistma. Great book. A lot of the data that I read from earlier in my sermon is from that book. 
Um, and then another book that I would commend to you is The Warmth of Other Suns. This is by Isabel Wilkerson. Oh, good, they're up there. Um, Isabel Wilkerson. This is a story about the Great Migration. And if you've never read the history of that, I commend this book to you because it will radically, radically change your perspective of what happened. Or another way that we could be more educated is just simply evaluating. Again, no matter what cultural heritage I'm a part of, do I have friends and relationships with people of a different ethnicity than myself, right? It's incredible how much you will learn and how much empathy will get produced in your heart when you sit at a dinner table with some good friends who are different from you so you can learn from their experiences. And what's great about our area is this is not hard because this is such a diverse area. I mean, it just takes being a good neighbor. And so one of the ways we can make repair is by being educated and listening to a diversity of voices. This is also why at Grace Hill Church, we have formed the Grace Hill Church Council on Race, Gender, and Poverty. Uh, many of our members have been approached about serving on this council, but we put this together in order to ensure that the voices that are helping to shape ministry at this church are not limited in perspective and experience. That is to platform voices that can be like Paul and help us to see when our hearts are out of step with the gospel and with what we say we believe. Now, this council is just a baby step. Our, our true desire is that our membership, our eldership, and our pulpit would embody this kind of diversity. Um, and forming this council is just a small step towards that ultimate goal. But as a church, I want Grace Hill to lead the way in repairing the damage that has been caused by some of our predecessors. And last one here is redeem. In Galatians 2, Paul was a redemptive voice against injustice. He rebuked Peter in front of everybody. He wrote about it in this letter. The Holy Spirit preserved it so that we could read it today and learn from it. And so I believe the church today has an obligation to be a redemptive voice for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to speak against injustice when it occurs in our communities. Um, some in the church want to say that speaking against injustice just distracts us from our true mission, right? Our true mission is the preaching of the gospel. But I just think Paul eliminates that dichotomy straight here in Galatians 2. Because Paul says that the injustice is out of step with the gospel. So when the church boldly speaks against injustice, we are demonstrating our belief in the gospel. And when we are silent when it comes to injustice, we're demonstrating that the gospel isn't as important to us. So I believe Grace Hill Church has an obligation to be a redemptive presence in our community and a voice against injustice. So I often wonder uh, what Grace Hill Church would have done if we were a church here in Herndon about 11 years ago. Back in 2007, 2008, our town was really divided. It was actually on the national news. The town council had approved a new labor center that would have helped many of the day laborers in our community find work. But there are many in our town that didn't like that idea of helping these immigrants find work. And there was even white supremacist group that came from different parts of the nation and they came here just to protest and get all up in the feud. And even, again, it made the national news. So the center was actually closed down less than two years after it was open because the town voted in a new council that ran on shutting it down. What would it look like in that moment of division in this town for this church to have a redemptive presence? Because I tell you, it would have been easy to not get involved. 
It would have been easy just to stay silent. Let's just do our thing. That, I mean, there's national news and there's protests. Let's not, let's not get into that. I often wonder what we would have done for this church to preach the gospel and display the gospel, for this church to demonstrate that all people have value and worth. I believe that because we know the gospel, because we know it, we have it, we believe it, that we have a responsibility to take the lead in our town when it comes to being a redemptive presence and using our voice to speak against injustice. And that starts in our personal lives, all of us. I mean, when we see racial prejudice, maybe in the workplace, maybe in our neighborhoods, maybe at school, do we speak up? Do we love our marginalized neighbor? Do we show that God values all people? Do we shy away from that complex and politically loaded issue? Or do we engage? And do we show what it means to be in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Listen, because the history of our nation has showed us that when the church sits on the sideline, injustice flourishes in our country. So Grace Hill, the issue, this issue of racial division, it's hard, it's complex, it's emotional, and it's difficult because it, it's deeply embedded in the heart of our nation. But my prayer is that we would be a church that would lead. That we would be a church that would lead by being the first to repent and not seeing ourselves as above this that we would be a church that would lead by seeking to repair damage where we can and being educated and platforming diverse voices and that we would be a church that would lead by being a redemptive and vocal presence in our community by demonstrating what it looks like to be in step with the gospel. That's my prayer for us and that's what I wanna pray for right now. Would you pray for me? Pray for us. Heavenly Father, one of the reasons why I believe this particular issue is so uh, difficult to talk about and it evokes such strong emotional responses um, Lord, is because it just, it, it, it gets right to the core of our humanity. For those who have felt the sting of racial bias, they have seen people tell them, they have heard people tell them, Lord, that they are just not valuable. And for, for those who've been accused of racial bias or those who um, feel like people think that they have racial bias, Lord, they it feels like, Lord, you commit this sin that can never be forgiven. It's such a messy issue, Lord. So, Lord, we just pray that, 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 Father, you would help us as a church to find our unity and our love for one another in the gospel. And that, Lord, where repentance needs to be had, we would repent, and, Lord, there would be forgiveness and reconciliation. Where trust has been broken, Lord, that we would repent and we would rebuild trust. 
But that, Lord, as this church grows and as this church continues to do ministry in this town, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, we would be a demonstration of what it means to be in step with the gospel. Lord, we all mess up and we all sin against one another, whether it's racial bias or something else. It's our sinful hearts. But Lord, we have the very thing that heals that. We have the very thing that brings reconciliation and forgiveness and wholeness back. And so Lord, I pray that we would find our unity in the gospel. Lord, we pray for our nation. Lord, our nation is so busy pointing fingers at one another and yelling and screaming at one another. Pray, Lord, the church would lead the way in repentance, acknowledging our own history and saying, listen, we've messed up big time in this area too. But Lord, the church would also demonstrate what it means to be reasonable and to seek unity and not just get all wrapped up in the rage. Lord, we love you. We pray that Grace Hill Church will be a redemptive presence in this town, that you would use us for your glory, you would use us, Lord, to bind up wounds, and you would use us, Lord, to show that Jesus Christ is the very one that is gonna heal these incredibly complex issues. We love you, Father, and we just pray as we sing this last song that you would just be honored and glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.